Welcome, everybody, to the first ever Say the Damn Score podcast. I'm Logan Anderson, where I'm going to be talking to you about the sports radio business and hopefully telling good stories from people all throughout the business at whatever level. And our first guest is Mark Boyle. He is the play-by-play voice of the Indiana Pacers, and I wanted him to be our first guest because he's a huge part of why this podcast exists. We'll tell that story a little bit later, but first of all, Mark, how are you doing today? Fine, thank you. As mentioned before, the inspiration from this podcast really came while having a few cocktails with Mark Boyle and Steve Holman, the play-by-play announcer of the Atlanta Hawks, at the NSSA convention in June. And I was sitting there talking and just mostly listening as Mark and Steve traded stories and told us about the business and how they got into it. And I was just fascinated. And I thought that probably there's going to be a lot of other people out and about in the world who would love to have these conversations but don't have the means to travel to North Carolina to have them. And the first, one of the things you talked about at that conference and one of the first thing I want to ask you is what was your big break because everybody has one it's a hard business to get into but what was your big break towards becoming successful well I had been working about oh I've been working about six or seven years and I already had four or five jobs and I was working in a town called St. Cloud Minnesota which is about an hour north of Minneapolis and my radio station was one of the affiliates on the then Minnesota North Stars radio network. The Stars have since moved to Dallas, but they were in Minnesota back then, and I got a call from the sports director of the radio station, which was KSTP in Minneapolis, and he told me that he had decided that he would fill his between-period intermissions with features from around the state, and his first calls were going to be to the affiliates to see if any of the people working in the affiliates had any interest in putting together uh, those kinds of feature stories that they could run between periods. So I did a story uh, about three and a half minutes long uh, on the St. Cloud State University hockey program. This was maybe in February or March. Uh, and they aired it at some point. Uh, fast forward a few months later to May, maybe June, I get a call from the general manager of that radio station. His name was Scott Meyer. And he said, I lost a guy. I have an opening. I heard the report you did uh, during one of our North Stars broadcasts, and I would like to talk to you about coming to work here. So I went down and interviewed with Scott, and I got the job in Minneapolis. And then after about two years there, Scott left and went to New York to become the general manager of WFAN, which at the time wasn't even on the air. It was about to become the first all-sports radio station in the country. So once he got that up and running, he called me and wanted to bring me with him to New York. So because of that feature that I did back in February when I was working in central Minnesota, I was lucky enough that Scott heard it, liked it, and he hired me in two major markets. He hired me to be a sports director in Minneapolis, and again, to be one of the original on-air voices in New York. And after that, I went to St. Louis and then came to the Pacers. So getting those two major markets on my resume was very helpful to me in terms of where I am now. And had it not been for Scott and the break he afforded me back in the in those days, I probably would be doing something else right now. What was the first play-by-play job you ever got? Well, my first job was in a town in eastern Montana. It was called, it still is called, Miles City. It was a town of about 10,000 men. I don't know how many people live there now, but it's a small town. And it was a small radio station, and in those small radio stations, you don't specialize. So I was a disc jockey and a farm reporter and a news reporter, 
But I got my first play-by-play experience there doing high school basketball, junior college basketball, high school football, and American Legion baseball. So I was young. I was 19 when I got that job. So I was doing high school games when I was still a teenager. You mentioned that your second major market job was at New York at WFAN, right at the birth of Sports Talk Radio. Being a part of that, did you guys have any idea what you were doing? Did you have an inkling of how successful that that format and that station would eventually become while you were there? Well, there were a lot of talented people there, uh, but we didn't know what we were doing because there was no prototype. So um, we started off, uh, and it was it was live local programming 24-7. There was, there was no network syndication then. There was no ESPN radio. There was no Fox Sports radio, and there was none of that. So we had to provide all of our programming. We did have the New York Mets on our station, but other than that, we didn't have the rights to any games. So it was sports talk, and we had some really talented people there. Uh, Greg Gumbel was our morning guy. Jim Lantley was there. Howie Rose, who's been the voice of the Mets now for a long time, was one of our guys. Uh, we had some talented people there, but it was a grind because we didn't know what we were doing. And the original premise was to have sports updates every 15 minutes. And what we found was that they became intrusive. Uh, you'd, you'd just start to get into a segment talking to a guest or uh, bantering with a caller, and then you'd have to go to this sports update, which, while it had useful information in it, turned out to be more of a showstopper than anything else. So we quickly went away from doing those every 15 minutes. But we were still flying by the seat of our pants because we didn't know what to do, and we struggled for a long time. Now, I was only there for a year, um, and just as I was leaving there to go to St. Louis, is when they really got it turned around because they ended up deciding this isn't quite working. We're not making enough money. In fact, they were bleeding money. And since it was the only such radio station in the country and no one had ever tried it before, there was always concern in the ranks that maybe they were going to give up on it and maybe we'd all be out of work. And they would just conclude that that format wasn't workable. But what happened after about a year was they were able to hire Don Imus from WNBC and they got the 660 frequency. They had been up at uh, 1050. 660 is a much better frequency. They put Imus on in the morning, and then they started making money. Uh, and Imus was doing his own kind of a show. He would talk about sports, but it wasn't a sports talk show. He had his own thing going. And it was very popular, and uh, he started generating revenue, uh, and then the station started to pick up a little bit. And now uh, that, was, that station started in 1987, so that's almost 30 years ago. And several times over the course of that run, they were the top revenue-generating radio station in the country. And they've been greatly successful to the point where now there are hundreds of imitators. Uh, all sports radio is, is not only uh, not rare, it's, it's, it's common. And that goes for local radio, and it also goes for syndicators, like, as I mentioned, ESPN radio. You've had sporting news radio over the years. And there's all kinds of, of nationally syndicated radio programs out there and uh, sports talk is is one of the more popular formats now in radio but back in the day we were the first ones starting it and, and there was a time there where we thought that maybe it wouldn't go and uh, and the whole thing would be abandoned as a failed experiment i went back and read some of your quotes from other interviews before going into this podcast and one of your quotes was that greg gumbel was horrible as the initial morning show host for WFAN. 
you know, we now know him as an incredibly successful TV host who's pretty much universally respected. What is it about him that makes him so good at TV but held him back on radio? Well, I think part of it was, as far as I know, Greg had never done radio. He'd been a TV guy from the beginning. In fact, I remember him telling me that he, he, he was in sales. And I forgot what it was he was selling, but he was in sales, and he's from Chicago, and his brother uh, is, is an extraordinary success story, Bryant Gumbel, who's been around forever and ever, and uh, is an iconic broadcaster. And Bryant helped Greg get into TV in Chicago. So WFAN hired Greg out of Chicago because of his name. Uh, he, and he'd been at ESPN as well by then. So he had a name, and they felt that was important in the market. But he really it wasn't his fault. He really didn't know how to do radio. Radio and television are so different. And he just struggled with it. And the ratings were bad, and he wasn't good. Uh, but then, as many people know, he went on to uh, work for CBS. Uh, I think he's still with CBS. He's been uh, on television for a long time, and he's, he's been a prominent play-by-play guy for the NFL. He was a studio guy for a while. TV is his thing. He's good at TV. And by now, he might be good at radio, but just think about it. Whenever you're doing something for the first time, the odds that you're good at it right out of the shoot, especially when you're trying to do it on such a big stage, New York is a, is a very unforgiving place. Uh, it stands to reason that you're going to struggle, and he did struggle, and he lasted a year, uh, and then Imus came in and took over that slot. So it's not that Greg wasn't talented or isn't talented. He is. But he hadn't done radio then, at least not to my knowledge, and if he had, he hadn't done very much of it, and at the time, he wasn't very good at it. Do you look back now and take a little bit of a sense of pride, knowing that you were in on the ground floor, basically, of sports talk radio? Um, I, I'm glad I did it. I, it was a good experience for me. And uh, from that standpoint, I, I, was, I was happy to have been a part of it. But I was such a minor part of it uh, that I, I wouldn't say I take pride in the success of it. Because the reality is that, A, Logan, I was a minor part of it. And, B, the station really didn't start to succeed until after I was gone. So, no, I, I wouldn't say that I take pride in it, but it was a fun experience and it was a very valuable experience for me in terms of advancing my career. Being a sports radio talk show host in 1992 or the early 90s, whenever that was going on, I was about six, so I have a hard time remembering. You, know, you didn't have the resources and the World Wide Web and all the stuff that we now have to prepare for a show. How have things changed and what did you do to prepare for a show before you had those resources at your disposal? Well, I don't know how it's changed because I'm not doing it anymore. But back in those days, and I had done it before. I'd done it in Minneapolis and in New York in the 80s, and then I did it in Indianapolis for a little while, like you said, in the early 90s. But what we were trying to do is to focus on the local scene. So we were talking about the Colts and the Pacers, uh, Indiana University, Purdue, and so forth. And it was easy to follow those teams because they were right in your backyard. Uh, you could read the local newspapers. Uh, you could go to practice and talk to players and coaches. The preparation wasn't difficult because the teams were right in your backyard. And if a, if a major national story did break, well, there was enough information that you could at least talk about it or call and get a guest who could talk about it. So the preparation is the same, I, I would assume, in that you're still – preparing for whatever it is you're trying to talk about, whether it's a local team or a national story. But there's no doubt there's more information available. All you have to do, as you point out, is to get on the Internet. Uh, and I would assume, like anything else, that's a double-edged sword. It does make preparation easier because the information is more accessible. 
on the other hand, you can get lost on that internet, spending way too much time and 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 not using your time efficiently. So I don't know how it's changed, or even if it has changed, because I'm not doing it anymore. But back in the day, we were focused on doing local stories. It was pretty easy to follow the local teams when you live in the city. So the reason that I really wanted to have you on this podcast is to talk with you about your time with the Indiana Pacers. You started there in 1988. You've been there for 27 years. How did you end up getting that job? Did you just apply for it on a lark? Did you have an in? What was your big break for getting that particular position? It was like so many other opportunities, and I'm sure if you continue to do these podcasts for a long period of time and ask your various guests the story, they'll all have a story similar to this. It was a case for me of, of being in the right place at the right time. I had left New York to go to St. Louis, and I was working at KMOX Radio in St. Louis, which in those days was a very powerful AM radio station. It's a, it's a legendary station to this day, and one of the reasons I wanted to work there is because of the guys that had worked there before me. Bob Costas worked there, Jack Buck worked there, Terry Terry worked there, and it was known as, as perhaps the single most prominent sports radio station in America at that time. And I wanted to work there, but when I got there, I quickly found that my style didn't mesh with what they wanted to do, and it was an uncomfortable pairing. It wasn't working for me, and it wasn't working for them. And so I decided that I would see what else was out there. So I started calling around to my various contacts. By then, I'd been around uh, in broadcasting for about 10 years, and I had worked in two major markets, so I knew people. And I started calling around, and somebody told me that they had heard the Dallas Mavericks were looking for a play-by-play guy. So I called down to Dallas, and I talked to their people, and they said, we were looking for a guy. We lost our number two guy, our backup guy. He went up to Indiana to take the Pacers job in July, but after a couple of months, he found that he would rather come back to Dallas because our number one job opened. He was... Uh, he hadn't sold his house. His wife and family were still behind. He wanted to go back to Dallas and take the number one job when it opened. And the Pacers let him out of his contract. So the bottom line there was that the Pacers were looking for somebody. And this was not literally on the eve of training camp. But as I recall, there were a few days, maybe 7, 10, 14. I don't remember what it was. But they were up against it because they were going to play an exhibition game in, in a couple of weeks. So I called Indiana, and I was the beneficiary of timing there because they were desperate. At the time, it wasn't a good job in terms of of pay. I took a pay cut to go there. And so it wasn't a job that a lot of guys were seeking. And beyond that, many of the established guys were already locked into jobs for the coming season. So I called, and they said, we are looking, but we need to act quickly. Send your stuff. Well, it was a combination of they liked my stuff, and they were desperate. And it wasn't a great job in terms of, of how much it paid. Plus, they had gone through five guys in five years. So there were some negatives there that an established guy might not want to touch. Plus, there was a timing issue. And by the time we finally got to the point where I took the job, um, again, I don't remember exactly, but it was maybe two or three days before training camp started. And so probably less than a week before I broadcast my first NBA game. Bottom line on that story is this, right place at the right time, and that's a, that's a common theme with anybody that's been lucky enough to find something like this. There was another quote where, in the hiring process, Donnie Walsh, the GM of the Pacers at the time, asked you why he should hire you, and you said he would be an idiot not to. Now, that's an interesting quote. That shows a lot of confidence to say that to somebody 
in that position before you even have the job. So I guess, would you do that again? Is Did you think that was a good idea? Have you looked back at that and thought, oh, maybe not? I would do it again because that's who I am. And I use that story when I talk to students about, about getting a job and interviewing. It's important. Now, it's, it's not important that you be flip and irreverent, even if you are that way, but it is important that you understand this. If you go for an interview, you don't really have any kind of an idea of what's going to appeal to the person doing the interview or what a given radio station or team is looking for. So your best approach is always just to be yourself. Uh, let them know who you are, let them know what's important to you, and interview them. You know, you want to find out about their job also. It's not just them finding out about you. So in that situation, I had interviewed with uh, the head of marketing there and the head of broadcasting, and they liked me. And, and the story you tell is true. I hadn't met Donnie. I knew who he was. But the other two guys wanted to hire me, and they said, you need to go talk to Donnie. And I knew it was a pretty much a rubber stamp. They weren't going to invite me in to see Donnie unless they were pretty sure that this was a done deal. So I could have played it safe, but you know what? I wanted them to know who I was. I wanted them to know that I was confident. So uh, I wasn't in there any more than five minutes. Uh, and we exchanged pleasantries. Donnie was in the middle at that time of negotiating Rick Smith's rookie contract. So he had other priorities and he was busy. Uh, but he said to me, Greg, and Larry, those are the two guys that I'm talking about, the marketing guy and the broadcast chief, they want to hire you, uh, and so I want to know why I should. And that's when I said, well, because in my view, you'd be an idiot if you didn't. Now, he liked that, but it was just as possible that he wouldn't like it, that he would think I would split or uh, an egomaniac or a narcissist or whatever, and maybe that would have turned him off. Um, but I... I don't regret doing it. And even had I not gotten the job, I wouldn't have regretted doing it. I wanted him to know that I felt confident. And that, and it, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, just a line. It was, I felt that way. I did feel he would be an idiot if he didn't hire me. So I shared it with him, and it worked out for me. When you were hired, you were the youngest play-by-play guy in the NBA. That is a job where there's a lot of people who have been at it for a long time, and there's a lot of talented people who are older than you who have never had a chance at it. Did you feel any resentment from within or without once you got that position at your age at that time? No, and that's uh, and that's one of the things that's been a constant in the NBA, even now as I'm one of those older guys. I, I came when I was 27, and I'm 54 now, so I've, I've had this job for half of my life. And one thing has been constant, even as a lot, as a lot of things have changed. Once you're in the mix, once you're in the fraternity, uh, the other guys are always welcoming now, there may have been some resentment from outside the fraternity, guys that didn't have NBA jobs and wanted them, but within the ranks, everybody was very welcoming. Uh, guys went out of their way to ask me, could they do anything to help me make the transition? And and that resonated with me. I have tried to go out of my way to do the same thing for the younger guys that come in now. Uh, so, no, there was no resentment, at least not within the ranks. All the other guys had jobs, just as I did. There was no reason for any of them to be resentful. But as far as broadcasters on the outside looking in, guys that wanted NBA jobs and couldn't get them, even though they were talented, and, and trust me on this, there's only 30 of these jobs. And I don't know how many guys there are that could do them adequately or better, but it's got to be in the thousands. So for you to get one of these jobs is not just about your talent, but it's also about a lot of other things that you can't control, including circumstance, including luck, including getting a break. And so 
you're fortunate to have such a job, and I've always felt that if you are fortunate enough to get a job like this, then you owe it to the new guys that come in after you to help them too. With the Indiana Pacers, you got there right before their golden age started, right before they brought in Reggie Miller. You said they were talking about Rick Smith's contract as you were joining the Pacers. Watching basketball at that level with a team that was so good for so long, they never quite got over the hump to win a title, but they were always very, very competitive. That had to just be incredibly entertaining as a sports fan to be able to watch that caliber of basketball. Well, it's always entertaining whether your team's any good or not because it's the best basketball in the world. So 82 nights a year, you're watching something that's pretty elite and pretty entertaining. Uh, If your team's bad, it's still entertaining. Uh, But if your team's good, it's more fun. The people are easier to get along with. Guys aren't worried about getting traded. Coaches aren't worried about getting fired. So there's a a sense of, I don't even know what the word would be, but a sense of ease that doesn't exist on a team that's bad, where people tend to look over their shoulders and wonder where the axe is going to come from. Uh, It was a lot of fun, and it would have been, for me at least, a lot of fun if the Pacers had been bad every year. it's more fun if your team is good, at least for me. But I'm more into the broadcast than I am to the results on the floor. There's nothing I can do about any of that. I'm just a chronicler of events. But there is something I can do about the quality of the broadcast. So once we start, for me, it's a lot of fun, and I take great pride in making the broadcast as good as it can be. And the rest of it is just periphery. Uh, yeah, it's fun to be in the playoffs, and it's fun to watch people that you get to know succeed but really for me the priority has always been the broadcast and, and I, I i say this only half kiddingly if if the team i worked for was zero and 82 i would still have fun that's just how i look at the job you mentioned that you start to not openly root necessarily on the air but you certainly start to wish for the success of a lot of the players that you're around constantly did it ever go the other way where you maybe developed a little bit of resentment or dislike towards certain teams like the Knicks or the Bulls or the Heat who kind of kept the Indiana Pacers out of the NBA Finals a couple times? No, no, I had nothing against them. They weren't doing anything to me. You know, they were playing professional basketball, trying to win a championship, the same as my team was. But I wasn't competing against them. As I said before, I was just chronicling the developments. I was... I was a storyteller. I was relating what was happening. I wasn't competing against the New York Knicks or the Chicago Bulls or the Miami Heat or, for a while, the Detroit Pistons. Uh, They were the Pacers' rivals. They weren't my rivals. Although I do know guys that have jobs like this that that do take things like that to heart, that do take it personally. I I never did. Uh, That had no impact on me one way or the other. Like I said, I was hopeful that my teams would do well because that's good for all of us in a franchise. But as far as other teams standing in the way and preventing my team from doing well, no, I never had any resentment toward them at all. If anything, I admired them. You know, our fans would hate the New York Knicks in the 90s. But I liked the New York Knicks. I admired the way they played. I admired their professionalism. I admired the way they competed. Uh, And I liked them. Now, I I didn't like them beating my team, but I liked them and I admired them. And I never had any resentment toward them or any other team. Take us through your preparation process. What is your process? How much time and preparation does it take for you to call a game at an NBA level? Well, it's not even about being at an NBA level. If you're broadcasting a high school game or a college game, you should put just as much preparation into it. I always try to. Now, it's a little bit different when I was doing high school games because 
I didn't have the luxury of just doing one team's game in one sport. I was doing, uh, for example, a high school boys game on a Tuesday and a girls game on a Wednesday and maybe a high school hockey game on a Friday. And, and you're all over the map trying to get as prepared as you can for the various events. But when you're just with one team, uh, and it, it depends also, Logan, on what you define as preparation. Is going to practice preparation? Well, if it is, there's two hours right there. Uh, or is just reading articles preparation? Is preparing your spotting charts, if you have those for football, for example, is that preparation? Uh, I consider preparation to be anything I do to get ready for the next broadcast. And I don't know how to quantify that in terms of how many hours it is, but if, if you were to say, hey, just, just give me a guess, I would guess that I, I prepare four to five hours for every broadcast. So that would just be a guess. I don't, I guess. I don't even really know how to quantify it. Being part of those Indiana Pacers team, it's a little bit unique as there were three prominent players in that organization who went on to have broadcasting success as analysts, as podcast hosts. You know, Reggie Miller, Mark Jackson, and Jalen Rose are the ones that jump out to me. When you were getting to know them on the floor and being around them all the time, were you able to see the broadcasting potential in those athletes for the future? I suppose so, but I never thought of it that way then. I, you would never have a guy come through and say, boy, that guy's pretty interesting. When he's done, he might be a good broadcaster. In retrospect, you could see it. We had a lot of interesting guys on those teams who, who weren't just successful broadcasters. And as you've not even mentioned, a guy like Antonio Davis, who was doing stuff uh, for NBA radio on Sirius and has also been on uh, NBA TV. Uh, we had a lot of guys on that team that went on to become sex- successful coaches. Mark Jackson was with us. Byron Scott was with us for a while. Sam Mitchell was with us. So there were a lot of bright, interesting guys there. But as far as specifically thinking about a, a given player and saying, you know what, I bet this guy would be a good broadcaster when he's finished. No, I never really thought of it then. Although I'm not surprised that any of them have done well because they were always articulate and well-spoken and they were students of the game. Probably your most famous call was your ding-dong, the witch is dead call once the Pacers beat the New York Knicks for, I believe, the first time in the playoffs as rivals in the 90s. Reading up on that, you actually hated that call. Why? It's because I'm a big believer in spontaneity, and one of the reasons I like radio as opposed to saying television anchoring is because it's not scripted. Uh, Part of the challenge of it is to, on the fly, come up with a way to describe an event or a series of events so that your listeners who can't see it can and it's challenging and it's one of the reasons i liked it but as that series wore along and that was before the pacers had had any success the the year before they had gotten to the eastern conference finals and that was the first time they'd ever even won an nba playoff series but they lost in the conference finals so this was the next year and it wasn't the conference finals it was the conference semifinals but it was against the same team that had taken them out in the conference finals the year previous and that was new york so as the series wore along and I could see the potential for the Pacers possibly winning, uh, which they did in Game 7 in New York, uh, it, it occurred to me that the story was not unlike The Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy was trying to get away from the uh, Wicked Witch, and I thought to myself, maybe I can use that to come up with a line that if the Pacers win the game, I can throw in there, and that's what I did. So the Knicks had the ball with a chance to win the game on the last possession, and Patrick Ewing missed a shot, Dale Davis rebounded, the Pacers prevailed, and then that's when I throughout the ding-dong, the witch is dead. And I didn't like it in, in large part, maybe even solely, because it, it just wasn't spont- uh, spontaneous. It wasn't my style, and I never liked it. Now, that said, 
I, I, I feel fortunate, and I've been very gratified that people around here seem to love it. It, it, it. Barely a week or a month goes by without somebody, you know, repeating it to me somewhere, uh, in a restaurant or out on the street somewhere. People really like it, and I'm grateful for that because it would have been really, really upsetting if I hated it and the fans hated it, and then I had to live with it for the rest of my career. So I don't like it, but everyone else seems to, and I'm grateful for that. So later on down the road as you're prepping for games and kind of developing storylines, if something popped into your head that seemed like it could fit a certain situation well, did you almost go out of your way not to use a specific line that you had premeditated just because it wasn't spontaneous? I wouldn't go that far, uh, but I don't consciously store it either. I have found that over the years maybe I'm thinking of something and something rattles around in my head and then it, and then it goes away. And then when a call comes or an opportunity to say something comes, it just sort of pops out. Maybe it was like stored in the memory bank somewhere, and when it was time to, to, to use it, it popped out. And I can't even think of an example. I don't know for sure that that ever did happen. But I, I, I can, to answer that question, say to you, if something does come to mind, the difference there is I sat down in that New York situation and gave it thought. I specifically thought about it, and I was looking for a line, and that's what I came up with. Uh, that has not happened since. So I don't know that I would specifically avoid something if it occurred to me, but I don't go out of my way to cultivate it either. And, and I like to think that most of, of my work now is fun, as spontaneous, if not all. What's a call over your career that you've been really proud of that you really thought you nailed? I can't. I, you know what? I can't answer that. I, I don't look at it that way. I don't have calls. I just describe games, and, and I like to feel like I do a pretty good job of it. But I, 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 know, I know where you're going here, and I, and I can't say to you, well, when the Pacers uh, defeated the Knicks to get to their first NBA final in 2000, this is what I said, because I don't remember to tell you the truth what I said. Uh, and we've had a lot of late games, and we've been late game heroics, and we've been very fortunate here uh, over the years to have Reggie Miller, who has been one of the great clutch players in NBA history, and he's come up with any number of dramatic moments. And I can't remember what I said in any of those either. Uh, I'm not into catchphrases. I'm not. I'm not into any of of the things that the younger generation of guys seems to be into now. Uh, and that's not to criticize them. It, it works for a lot of guys, and, and more power to them. But it's not my thing, and I don't really look at it as I had a call, and this is what it was back in 2006 when the Pacers did this, or back in 1999 when they did that. I just look at it as my job is to describe everything that happens over the course of a basketball game, and some nights I do it better than others. But I don't specifically remember anything I said during any of those situations. You work in the NBA where there are huge stars in your presence that you're working with every single day. Have you ever been starstruck by anyone you've run across? No, and as I've gotten older, I I realized that that's rare. I talk to a lot of, of young broadcasters or would-be broadcasters now and they always ask me oh do you know so-and-so and i might say well i've met him but i don't know him or yes i do know him and then inevitably a lot of times it will come back to me wow what how, how's that almost as though they're worshiping these guys and i try to stress this to young broadcasters these people are no better or worse than you are they're just people with a specific set of skills that allows them to be on a stage and allows them to have some notoriety or some fame or whatever. But they're no different than you are, so you should approach them as you would a worker in an office. These are my coworkers. Now, we're doing different things, but we work at the same place. And I see them every day, 
And I'm pretty sure that the average guy who goes to work isn't intimidated or awestruck or starstruck by his coworkers, and I don't see any reason that I should be either. Uh, and, and this will sound, and this helps me, uh, because this is part of the way I look at it, even though I think it may sound a little, uh, well, maybe it's a little braggadocious, but I look at it like this. I'm at least as good at my job as you guys are at yours, so if you're not starstruck by me, there's no need for me to be starstruck by you. I consider us peers, and I, I, and I don't think that's odd. Maybe it is, uh, but most of the guys in the NBA have been around for a while, and they've been around enough teams, and I don't see anyone around here being starstruck, but I, I guess I could understand why a younger guy would be, although I don't think he should be. One of the things that I found really interesting at the NSSA convention in North Carolina was just talking with all different broadcasters at all different levels and kind of just trading horror stories, for lack of a better term, of not being able to see a scoreboard or having numbers that you can't read in a broadcast, making a broadcast difficult. You were part of one of the darkest days in NBA history when Ron Artest ran into the stands at the Malice and the Palace and actually broke your back in that process during that game. Let's just paint this with a really broad brush. What was it like being there at that moment in such a chaotic situation? Well, it was the end of an early season game between the Pacers and the Pistons, and they had played in the conference finals the year previous. And it was fairly clear, even that early in the season, that they were the two best teams in the East again and probably would be seeing each other in the playoffs. So this was a game in November, and I think the Pacers at the time were 7-2 and two maybe. We were very early in the season. And it was in Detroit, and the first meeting of the year between the two since the conference finals. And the Pacers dominated. They ended up winning the game, I think, by 17 points. But at the end, and, it was a, and the Pacers and Pistons always played very physical, very intense games. So at the end of this game, there was less than a minute to go. And it had been a physical game, and the Pacers had dominated, and the Pistons were frustrated, and there was a hard foul committed by Ron Artest against Ben Wallace. So Ben took offense, and he shoved Ron, and the whole thing ended up over at the table where we were broadcasting. And the officials did an extremely poor job of sorting it out. They let it go on way too long, and most people know what happened. Uh, One of the uh, fans came down from uh, the upper reaches of the arena, and he had a cup of beer, and he threw it on Ronnie, and Ronnie went up in the stands. Uh, and, and everyone else has seen all of, the, all of the video a million times by now. But where I got hurt there was when Ronnie went up. Uh, I tried to, to stop him. I tried to grab him, and he went right over the top of me and into the stands, and I landed on the, on the floor, which was cement where we were. We were right on the floor there. It was a cement floor, and I ended up fracturing five vertebrae. So the game was not canceled, but the game was ceased. We didn't play the final, whatever it was, 45 seconds. Uh, and... There was some talk of our players being arrested. That never happened. It took us a while to get out of there because of the commotion and the circumstances. Uh, and it, it was a really weird, unusual situation. And, and, and you, you described it accurately. It was a dark day in NBA history because, obviously, no league wants to see its players going up into the stands and mixing it up with paying customers. That's a, that's a horror story. And it ended up costing the Pacers because uh, they had a really good team, a team that was good enough to win a championship. Uh, and our test ended up being suspended for the season. Other guys were suspended for long chunks of time. They still won, I think, 44 or 45 games and still got back to the conference semifinals. That's how good they were. And they lost to Detroit in six games. So uh, it was a very unfortunate situation uh, for the league in general and specifically for the Pacers. Were you on the air the entire time? What did your call sound like? Well, like I told you before, I don't remember 
what it sounded like. I don't remember what I said. But we were on the air when Ronnie went up in the stands, and when he went over the top of me, we got knocked off the air. Uh, and so we, I guess you would say, plugged the equipment back in. I don't recall exactly what we did. We have an on-site engineer who does all that. But we got knocked off the air. Uh, and so it didn't take long to get us back on the air. So we got back on the air. Well, by the time we'd been on for not very long, a couple of minutes maybe, we could see that the situation was very tense. Already fans were out on the floor. And, and you felt, although I didn't feel that way at the time, in retrospect, I, I think it was foolish that I didn't. But I, you were in a danger zone. Uh, there were people with adrenaline and people throwing punches. and they, What we decided to do was, was turn the broadcast over to the studio. Uh, and so our studio guy just called the rest of it off of the, of the monitor. The game was on ESPN. And so he was able to see what was going on, and he described it to our listeners. But we decided to unplug and get out of there uh, because there was the possibility of, of injury. And uh, I, I didn't know it at the time, but I'd already fractured five vertebrae. You know, I also had gotten my head cut open, uh, a superficial forehead wound, but those forehead wounds bleed quite a lot, so I had blood in my eyes. and It, it was a... Um, I should have been terrified, but I was right in the middle of it, and I, I just wasn't, uh, I guess because I didn't understand the gravity of it. But you could see that it had the potential for, uh, it, it already had been uh, very traumatic for those involved, and you could see that it had the potential to get even worse before uh, there were police on the floor and, and there were fans, uh, you know, coming after players, and it was it was a very bad situation. What are a few other horror stories in your long broadcasting career that you've experienced, whether that's calling Legion Baseball in Montana or calling NBA games for the Pacers? Well, you know, the inconvenience stories that you would get from anyone who's worked his way up through the ranks. You know, I've done, I've done hockey games out of a penalty box. Uh, I was in a, a football press box that blew over with me in it. Uh, yeah, I wasn't hurt, but, you know, it, still, it's an interesting story. Uh, and, and you have, you know, I've done I've done high school football games sitting on top of a van, those kinds of things. I wouldn't go so far as to call them horror stories. It's just the way it is in those small towns, or at least the way it was then. Uh, you set up your broadcast as best you could, and then you did the best you could, whether you were sitting in a penalty box in Waterloo, Iowa, which I've done, or uh, in a uh, wooden press box in Circle, Montana that blows over, which happened to me, or wherever you are. You just do the best you can. And uh, there are guys that have a lot worse stories than I have, but most of my stories that are amusing or have to do with inconvenience have to do with broadcasting games from sort of odd locations. You're a man with a lot of unique interests, as in the off season you've gone fishing for piranhas in the Amazon, and you've played in the U.S. Open chess tournament. You call rookie league ball in Montana just for peanuts in the summer, just because you like it. Certainly, you have a lot of time in the off season. But what makes you want to try all the things that some people would find very unique? And is there anything that you want to try that you haven't tried yet? Um, no. But I'm sure I'll come up with something. Oftentimes I come up with something in the fall and think, you know, that'd be something that would be interesting to do next summer. Uh, and it's a combination of I'm a curious person. I want to experience a lot of things outside of sports if I can. And, uh, you know, I, I have a seasonal job. I'm under contract year-round, and the Pacers do ask us to make appearances and such during the summer. But they're very flexible. Uh, I spent a year, I mean, uh, I'm sorry, not a year, I spent uh, a summer out in Montana doing rookie league ball, and they were kind enough to give me the time off. I didn't have to do anything for the Pacers for those two and a half months. Uh, I walked 518 miles across Indiana one summer to raise money for charity. 
they're not they're not only tolerant of what I want to do, they're supportive of it in, in most cases. So it's it's a combination of I'm curious, I want to try different things, I've got the time to do it, and the Pacers are kind enough to be supportive. So uh, to, to my way of thinking, I would be foolish not to take advantage. But that's just me. Other guys use the summer to travel. I don't have any children, and so I don't have some of the responsibilities that some of these guys do. They would spend, for example, large chunks of their summer on family vacations or watching their kids' Little League games or soccer or whatever. Uh, those aren't things that I do. But I still have the same free time that they have, and I like to take advantage of it, and I've been really fortunate to get with a franchise that's been supportive of that. How did you do in the U.S. Chess Open? Uh, I didn't stay for the whole thing. It, 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 it lasted, I think, maybe 10 days, and you played a game a day. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly how the format was, but there was a wide variety of players there. There were former U.S. champions. Uh, I played a game against uh, the U.S. Armed Forces champion, for example. Uh, but I stayed there for four days, and I lost three and tied one. So I never did get a win, and I wasn't going there to win. I, 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 I didn't think I was a grandmaster. I just wanted to see, because I'd been an avid chess player when I was younger, when I was a teenager. And I hadn't played much in, in the ensuing years, and I wanted to see if I could at least go and play against these players who were pretty good without humiliating myself. And I knew I wasn't going to be in line to win the U.S. Open Championship. Uh, and it, and it's, it's a little um, less impressive than it sounds, because you don't, it's not like golf or tennis. You don't actually have to qualify. Anyone who wants can go play. And I wanted to go play, so I paid an entry fee, which I think maybe was $250, and it was out in suburban Washington, D.C. So while I was there, I also you know, did the, uh, the tourist thing. I went to the U.S. Treasury, and I did a lot of other things that I hadn't really had a chance to do. Uh, and I would play one game of chess a day, which it, at that level, these games take a couple hours or more. So it, it, it was a big chunk of the day, but I never did win one. But I, I felt pretty good about the way I competed. I, I had at least... Uh, done okay and now the fourth the fourth game was the worst one for me because i played three i had the u.s uh armed forces champion beat and i made a foolish move and he beat me now the other two guys beat me pretty convincingly uh but i hung in there and then the last game was against a little kid uh, maybe he was 10 and uh, and he crushed me <laughs> and i decided that it was time to go home what play-by-play guys do you like to listen to if you're just listening for a game on a night off? Well, it depends on, on the sport. Uh, there are a lot of really gifted guys in a lot of different sports. And for me, baseball is the one I like to listen to. I will listen to basketball when I'm in my car uh, because I need to know about the NBA. So I'll listen to a lot of NBA games. But baseball is the game for radio, and, and I really enjoy listening to a lot of those guys. And there are so many good baseball broadcasters. Um, I, I think baseball is the most difficult to do, and I think it's subjective. There's no way to quantify it, but I, I, I believe that baseball has a higher percentage of really talented guys than the other sports do, maybe because it's harder to do, and uh, so anyone that gets to that level is really terrific, or maybe it's just my own opinion. But I like to listen to guys like John Miller doing uh, the Giants or Dan Schulman doing the ESPN game. There are any number of really good baseball broadcasters. In our league, some of the guys uh, that I admire uh, are guys you might not have even heard of because they're not high-profile guys. Uh, but Ryan Seaman with the Clippers is very good, for example, in my estimation. Uh, Alan Horton with the Timberwolves is very good. And then, you know, you have some of the older guys who are iconic in their markets. Al McCoy has been in Phoenix for 
40 years, and he's in his 80s, and he's still as good as ever. Uh, so there are a lot of guys I really enjoy listening to. Uh, and I will say this, at, at our level, at the NBA level, at the MLB level, NHL, and so forth, there, there aren't guys that are bad. So it's just a matter of, oh, I like this guy's style better than that guy's style, which isn't to say the other guy's not a good broadcaster. But the first guy's style appeals to me a little bit more. So uh, there are a few that I like more than others, but they're all really pretty good. Have you ever said anything dumb on live radio that you immediately regretted and wish you hadn't said? Oh, I say dumb things all the time. But I, I've never said anything that got me in trouble or, or that I was embarrassed about. Or, or, you know, you hear about guys having meltdowns or, or letting stuff slip that they shouldn't and they have to apologize for it. None of that's ever happened to me. But, you know, I, I say dumb things all the time. I make countless mistakes every night but i can't think of any one thing i've actually said where i said oh man uh, i'm really embarrassed that that got out of my mouth or i need to apologize publicly for that or whatever but you know when you're doing three hours of live radio at night which is essentially what an nba game is when you factor in the pregame and so forth you're going to make a lot of mistakes and you just have to you just have to grind on through you can't dwell on the mistakes because if you did you'd be crippled uh, there's too many and no matter how good you are, you're going to make them, particularly now where we've been over the last 10 years or so moved in most buildings up off the floor to places that are varying degrees of difficult to work from. So we don't have as clean a sight line anymore. We're not as close to the floor, so we make identification mistakes. Uh, and, and it's a little harder to do a game than it was when I came in because of that. But uh, if I, if I, you know, made, if I, sat down and dwelt on all the mistakes I made on a nightly basis, I, I would probably quit because I would think I was incompetent. What would your advice for an upcoming sportscaster be? Well, I, I would, I, and I tell this to, to guys and gals all the time, there's a couple things for me. Uh, number one, understand what you can and can't control. And focus on what you can control. You can't control, for example, uh, if, if your dream job opens. Or you can't control if whoever's in charge of hiring the next play-by-play guy for Georgia Tech likes your work. You can't control any of that. What you can control is working hard enough to be in a position to take advantage of a break if one comes your way. Uh, you can't control whether you get a break or not, but I, I'm a believer in hard work, increasing your chances to get one, or at the very least, increasing your chances to take advantage of one when it does come along. So control what you can control. Let the rest go, and never, ever let anyone outwork you. That's my primary advice. And then beyond that, for a broadcaster, I say the key to being a broadcaster is to be a communicator. And the only way to really be a communicator is to master the English language. Uh, don't get caught being a run-of-the-mill guy in terms of being able to use the language, because especially on radio, we're in a medium there where people can't see what we're trying to describe. So the better command of the language you have, the more descriptive terms you have, the better chance you're going to be able to get the guy or the gal listening to your broadcast to see it. So I tell high school students, for instance, or even college students, uh, you know what? Take as many speech classes as you can. Take writing classes. If, if your school has a debate program, get in it. If your school has a theater program, get in it. Performing in front of, of live audiences is very helpful as, as, as a tool uh, to get used to being a broadcaster because in the, in the end, that's what you're doing as a broadcaster. You're performing live, and although you can't see your audience necessarily, they're there, and you need to be able to perform. So I, I encourage young people who want to be broadcasters 
to do what I just told you. Master the language to the extent that you can. Do things to enhance your verbal skills. And then find out what you can control and what you can't. Focus on what you can control and never, ever let anyone outwork you. Those are the things I offer as, as uh, advice to the young people who want to be broadcasters. One of my personal beliefs is that most great sportscasters are probably pretty avid readers, as reading helps you to learn how to develop a narrative from the best in the business at making narratives, and it also helps you to expand your vocabulary and master the English language. Are you a reader, and what do you enjoy reading? Uh, That's an excellent point, and yes, I am an avid reader, and I have been ever since I was a young boy. And when I was oh, I don't even know, let's just say 10, 11, 12. And I was already a voracious reader by then, and I decided to make a conscious effort because I was really into sports. Sports were my primary interest. And, uh, you know, I watched games. They weren't, they weren't a lot on TV then, but I watched them when they were. I listened to them. I read about teams and players in the papers and in the sporting news and Sports Illustrated. I was into all of that. But I didn't want to be a one-dimensional guy. So what I did was make a conscious effort to read at least one non-sports book for every sports book I read. And so I got into novels and history and biographies. And now, as an adult, I find that most of my reading is non-sports related. I do read sports books as they appeal to me. But I read a lot of novels. I enjoy um, police procedurals. I enjoy action novels. I just enjoy a wide variety of things, and I feel like that decision when I was younger that I referred to earlier, uh, first of all, to read a lot. My parents were big on education and very encouraging of my brother, my sister, and I reading as much as we could, and that's part of the process when you're young. That's part of the process to learning about the language, learning how to use it, learning how to use it creatively. Reading helps you do that. So that was helpful to me. And then the other thing I believe in is if you have enough interest outside of sports, uh, I think it helps you to communicate better. You're not a one-dimensional guy. Maybe something happens in a broadcast, and uh, uh, you can use a turn of a phrase that you read in a classic that fits the situation perfectly. Or maybe you can compare something to something that happened in history. Uh, If you don't know history, you can't do that. If you haven't read a lot of books, you can't turn a phrase. So all of those things were very helpful to me, especially early on as you're trying to learn about the language and how to use it to your benefit. Pretty much everybody who at some point develops a passion for sports played sports at some level. I guess, what was your athletic experience, and did you ever play sports at a high level? Well, it depends by what you mean by high level. I didn't play in college. I didn't even go to college. But I played all through high school like most of my friends did. And in those days, we... We weren't as prone to specialize as kids are now. Uh, if you show that you're particularly good at something, uh, oftentimes by the time you're 14 or 15, that's all you're doing. But in my day, you know, you played, for example, football in the fall, basketball in the winter, baseball in the spring, or hockey in the winter, or soccer in the fall, or whatever it was you were interested in, but you changed sports from season to season. And I think that's uh, an unfortunate development, and I think kids are missing out on great opportunities as we become more specialized, but that's a topic for for another day. Uh, The answer to your question is, it depends what you mean by high level. If you mean college and beyond, then no, I didn't, but I did play in high school. What sports were your favorite to participate in? Oh, baseball has always been my favorite, Uh, and I played football and basketball. I didn't particularly like football, but all of my friends were playing it, so I played it. 
I loved baseball, and I enjoyed basketball. So it was football for me in the fall, and then basketball in the winter, and baseball in the spring. Last question for you, as this podcast is designed for not only myself, but other broadcasters to become better at what they do, hopefully while being a little bit entertained by the stories that we talk about. But what I'm going to ask you to do here is just kind of grade the interview that we just went through of yourself. Do you think that I asked questions that made sense, or did I just say the same things that you always hear in every interview that you do? Well, I, I, I will say a few things jumped out at me. Uh, it was obviously it was obvious that you had prepared for it, which is always good. Uh, and it was also good, at least I felt most of the time, that your next question was predicated on my previous answer. In other words, you didn't have a preconceived way to do the interview, but you had the information you needed to do it. And I've always believed that a good interview is nothing more than a conversation, and I, I think you, uh, you were good with that. It was, it was a well-executed interview. Uh, but as far as touching on new territory, no. But, you know, I've, I've been around for a long time, and there's not a lot of new territory to touch on. So uh, I, I wouldn't berate yourself for that. That's just the way it is. But the interview itself I, I thought was good. I thought you did some good things. And if, if people are listening and, uh, and curious about what makes a good interview, at least in my view, it's, it's what I just told you. Be prepared, but don't be scripted. In other words, have an idea of what you want to talk about. Have enough knowledge of the person's background and experiences and accomplishments so that you can have this conversation. But that's what it should be, a conversation. So you start off with the first question. And then after that, you shouldn't have any preconceived ideas about where you want to go. Let the interview go where it's going to go. Now, if, if the guest gets too off topic and if he's a rambler, you might want to steer him back to the center of the road. But your, your questions should always be predicated on the previous response, and you should uh, ha- have it as a conversation. And I, and I, and I, I will tell, tell you this. Here's, here's something that you and, and your listeners, if they're aspiring young broadcasters, might be advised to spend some time with. There's a guy named Donnie Barnes who uh, is uh, in Class A ball out in California, and he does a podcast uh, with John Miller, Mike Emmerich. They're long-form interviews. I've been been a guest of his, for example. Uh, And he is a really, really good interviewer. He listens and he asks good questions. So if you want to hear somebody that I think really does a good interview, you can just go online, and you can find him at DonnieCast.com. There's a whole series of these interviews, and I think anyone that wants to be a good interview would be well served by listening to these. This has been the first ever Say the Damn Score podcast, of course, with Mark Boyle, our guest, the play-by-play voice of the Indiana Pacers. And, Mark, thanks for joining us. Okay, Logan, I enjoyed it. Thanks.